0: So my new colleague was really disappointed that we didn't put up the pictures of the dead whale that you took photos of.
1: <laughs> did you end up showing them?
0: I did. After saying to her, you should email us <laughs> and ask for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she said, well, no, you should just put them up. And in the end, I buckled.
1: Uh, w- can
0: I, they well, were everything she hoped for and more. <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable...
1: Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This week's episode is going to be on creativity. We are a week late. Uh, Sorry about that, but Amy... Was sounding a bit like Marge Simpson. You had laryngitis?
0: Yes. On my good days, I sounded like Marge. Yes. My bad days, Voldemort?
1: Voldemort. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Harry Potter.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So, yeah. So, that, um, so sorry for uh, being a little bit delayed, but we thought we'd bring you something. We of continue on the vibe of just a little bit of off, off clinical topics for a bit and thought we'd talk about creativity. Amy, you came up with it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about how many people I know who say that they're not creative people mm-hmm. and are quite reluctant to try stuff that's creative because they go, "Well, that's just not just not good at that." Yep. And so I started down the rabbit hole trying to find out if there was any research on that, and ended up somewhere else entirely.
1: Yes, as is often the case. I often see. I think in my world, I think I've got a lot of people who would say they're creative, but I would probably, having been married to an artist, yeah, would say that. The, a lot of people say they're creative, but they're perhaps not that actually engaged in creativity as much as they would perhaps think they are or suggest they are.
0: So, kind of think of themselves as creative people, but mm. don't necessarily produce do creative things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I mean, in one of the papers I talk about, they they sort of reflect on the difference between scholarly interpretations of being creative and um uh, You know, self-defined creativity, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Do you think you're creative?
0: I think I enjoy creative things and... But I don't know that I'd go so far to say that I'm a creative person. I think in some parts of my life I am. Yeah. But it's not something that I'd sort of shout from the rooftops. Yeah. Kind of, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've definitely... I think I've got... I've definitely got a hint of it, but Mm. I wouldn't say I've got a large dose of it. Mm. Uh a bit yeah. left of center with stuff but
0: I also I don't have any articles in my batch that go into this but about sort of being creative in your work yep. and I wonder whether both of us are creative interpersonally in our work
1: yes yes
0: and that's kind of different from being creative in art or
1: yeah hmm. yeah so there's an interesting kind of topic and many, many facets of it, so ho- hopefully it will be an interesting discussion. Before we get started though, uh, if you are enjoying the show, please uh, rate or review our show um, on iTunes or wherever you can do that, because um, that really helps us uh, improve our ratings and then that means that more people see the show and more people will listen to it, and uh, we have been seeing that the numbers are steadily increasing, which is exciting, mm-hmm. but we'd always like some more listeners. <laughs>
0: We're greedy like that.
1: (laughs) Yes, we greedy like that. So, Amy, did you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure.
0: So the first article I've got is called Everyday Creativity in Daily Life, an experience sampling study of little c creativity by Silver and colleagues in 2014 in Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity and the Arts. So this article, I think like your first one, is looking at, Day to day creative behaviour. Yep. So they sort of distinguish between little c creativity and big c creativity. So
1: big c being art or like musicians,
0: uh, or something like musicians that. yeah, people who are producing creative works
1: versus little c being
0: everyday enjoyment of things like sewing, painting, yep. that sort of thing, cooking. Yeah. So, this is focused on the everyday stuff. So, any sort of creative activity that's common among ordinary people in day-to-day life. So, it pretty much covers anything that's kind of done with the purpose of being creative is how they define it. And so, they speak about the importance in psychological development so that it can sort of help you to explore your identity or build relationships with other people. Mm that it can give you a sense of competence and achievement and give you time to reflect on what's going on in life. Yep. But they also highlight that previous researchers used self-report scales. And so there's a lack of research examining what people are actually doing in day-to-day life in real time. So that was the, the focus of their study. So what they did was that they recruited 79 students, most of whom were women, and then got them to complete measures of personality, uh, self-report scales of everyday creativity, which was the biographical inventory of creative behaviors, where mm. essentially you just ticked off which creative activities you'd done in the last year. Yep. Uh, and then they used a phone-based survey system for a week. So it was an automated voice-based survey, so you get a call with a robot. Uh, So, the participants nominated a 12-hour window that they were happy to be contacted in. Um, They could specify their own one. They sort of said that uni students tend to have unusual hours. So, it wasn't okay to do, you know, 8am to 8pm for a lot of people. No. (laughs) But then they received eight phone calls each day in that window for a week. So, quite intensive. And on each one, they were asked about what they were currently doing. So, whether they were currently doing a creative activity or not. Mm-hmm. And then to rate particular emotions that they were feeling before the call. So, it asked sort of on a on a scale, how happy were you, how yep. sad, yep. et cetera. And then to say whether they're alone or with other people. Yeah. Uh, so, they had a 65% response rate, which they said was pretty similar to other studies with these kind of phone call-in systems and they counted out anyone who it was obvious that they just clicked next multiple times to get through the phone call. (laughs) It was far too quick for them to consider answering. Mm -hmm. They found that people were engaged in creative activity 22% of the time when they were contacted and this ranged a bit differing between those who were in arts majors and those who weren't. So people in arts majors, it was closer to 40%. And then just under 20% for those who weren't, they sort of attributed this to the amount of time that you would be spending both in terms of enjoyment and practicing the musical instrument or creating pieces for your degree. Yeah, exactly. They found that feeling happy and feeling active predicted current creative behavior, but the sort of negative emotions or neutral emotions had no predictive value, mm-hmm. which I found interesting. Given that you sort of, there are some stereotypical sort of pictures of melancholic artists or things like that, you kind of challenges that stereotype yeah, a little cause, bit.
1: because there the, there is that kind of idea about uh, negative mood spurring yeah. great pieces of work and all that. You kind need of to
0: stuff. get out your anger or yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: then you know, it sounds like from that study and actually similar to the findings of study I'm going to talk about as well, like the happiness.
0: And feeling active, active, versus, yeah, say,
1: being feeling relaxed actually is associated with being creative,
0: yeah. I suppose that that's sort of motivation getting you moving, that sort of thing,
1: yeah. I mean, I know I wonder whether there's a difference between like getting something completed, yeah, versus say seeds of ideas,
0: yeah. So maybe the ideas come when you're feeling low and then you have enough of a
1: yeah, but, pickup, but I don't know, but hmm. maybe, maybe you more cre- like.
0: Maybe it's just the the public figures that that are sort of more the tortured art. Yeah, yeah. Develop that persona. Anyway, uh, so the last thing that they looked at were five factor personality traits, yep. which gone over again and again. Uh, but they found that openness to experience was related to creativity, yep. well, creative activity, and as was conscientiousness, which yep. they didn't expect. But they attributed that to the fact that because of the art students in their sample that the conscientious ones were practicing their musical instrument doing their pieces for their course Hmm. things like that it was more of that achievement focus so it was technically a creative activity but
1: yeah yeah Yeah, conscientious ones are actually doing it yeah that kind of theory
0: yeah exactly and they're sort of they're doing it more regularly because they're they're focused on keeping up with things Mm. yeah and then also that what they rated in their self-report was uh, related to what they actually did. So the people who said that they had engaged in more creative activities actually did do that day-to-day. Yeah, right. So sort of supports the validity of some of those measures.
1: Yeah, because there's always that thing of like, I was doing something creative, but then if you actually asked them, they're doing yeah, it or not. Just
0: lying on the couch thinking about it. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's it. Mm, so there you go. Bit of everyday creativity.
1: Well, the the... Paper I'm going to talk about is actually uses the same methodology and okay. probably has similar findings. I so wrote, the phone yeah, the methodology. Yeah, So I've written copious notes. So, um, I'll probably as per, to, as per usual. <laughs> it's not. I'm not OCPD at all. No. Um, pod nine, I think that was. Anyway, um, from
0: even that you remember which pod. It's great. <laughs> Love it.
1: I, I'm resisting the urge to check. Which part it is. Anyway, so the paper I've got is from the same journal, Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity in the Arts. And this is From Moment to Moment to Day-to-Day, Experience Sampling and Diary Investigations in Adults' Everyday Creativity. So this is by Karl and colleagues. And in 2017...
0: So with adults rather than with uni students, yeah, young, so what, young people? Yes,
1: so what they do... this so they've got two studies in one of them. They have, quite, they have a, an older adult group Mm. and it it relates to it. So uh, this study caught my eye because it's got a very, very interesting methodology. So they start off with a really interesting quote from a a candidate for a Nobel Prize in literature called Tadous Razaik. I've definitely pronounced that incorrectly. And they he was asked about creative work process and sources of his inspiration. And he said, it comes from insomnia. There is little space in my creative process for creative outbursts and sudden lurches of emotions. It is normal, hard, everyday labor. And because I live next to a tram depot and hear <laughs> them starting off every morning, I begin my writing together with them. <laughs> and, so they, and they talk about how that had sort of stuck in their head. Yeah. They talk about you know what they and this this is not this is again focused on sort of everyday creativity. So this mundane forms of creativity behavior. So not highly creative adults. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a set of literature that's focused on highly creative adults.
0: So artists, musicians, that That kind of thing. thing. yeah. Yeah. So,
1: but looking at predictors of just this mundane creativity, and so they wanted to look at situational psychological factors, so situational being emotions, Mm -hmm. like what you're talking about, psychological being personality or previous creativity or achievement or intelligence. And so some elements of this study really make it interesting. It doesn't focus on a university sample. Mm -hmm. And study one is from a longitudinal sample so they could look at childhood characteristics of predictors of adult creativity. Mm. I'll explain a bit more about that. But just a little bit of background. So they talk about... Within-person factors uh, can be dynamic and changeable factors associated with creativity. So, like feeling happy and active, like we're talking about energetic, enthusiastic. And these things change from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And whereas between-person factors, so when things change from person to person, so personality factors like openness to experience, uh, they talk about extroversion as Mm -hmm. sometimes being found to be linked with being creative and also that these can moderate the impact of affect so people with high in openness to experience are more creative on emotionally positive days and less creative on negative days okay yeah so it's not just like if you're open to experience you're more creative yeah it's that you're if you're in a better mood on that day and you're high in openness yeah then then you will you're much more creative so yep. it's kind of like it like a little bit more nuanced hmm. And quite interesting yeah. and psychologists love finding those little, yeah.
0: qu- <laughs> those, little <quirks. laughs> those little quirks
1: and they talked about intelligence being correlated with creativity and apparently this has been like this, this ongoing finding mm. so there's like correlated between 0. 0.4 and 0. 0.5 associated with creativity but it's not sufficient to be creative so just because you're intelligent yeah. doesn't mean you're going to be creative yeah. but you kind of need intelligence to be creative that makes sense. If that makes sense. So so where this study is really interesting is that they accessed data from the Warsaw Study. So mm. I, I don't know, I'm not sure if you'd ever heard of it. Mm. It's a 40-year study and it was originally aimed to explain the determinants of life success and standing in social strata, looking at the impact of personality, environmental resources as assessed in childhood and how they would influence quality of life success. And uh, achievement. So in 1974, they found that in Warsaw was sort of an unusually homogeneous urban and school environment. Mm. So they got f- more than 14,000 pupils of Warsaw primary schools. So in the entire cohort of 11 year olds who had been born in 1963. Wow. Assessed them on intelligence, school achievement, and socio demographics. And so this study wanted to link those childhood characteristics at age 11 and also they did an assessment at age 13 with creative functioning at age 52. Mm-hmm. So, like, really yeah. fascinating. So, study one, uh, said 74 Polish adults aged 52 and they had a measure from the WISC, mm-hmm. which is the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for Children. So, it was the WISC 1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, like, currently, it's the WISC 3. 5. WISC 5, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, uh, it's gone through many iterations. Mm-hmm. And also the Raven's Progressive Matrices, which there'll be three mm-hmm. diagrams yeah. and then you have to pick a fourth that fits with yeah. that. Yeah,
0: so sort of non-verbal yeah. reasoning. Yeah,
1: very, very interesting yeah. test. Raven's Progressive Matrices, Google and have a look. So, that those are the intelligence things from children. Then they had a current measure of personality and a current measure of creativity, which is Inventory of creative activities and achievements. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how often have you been engaging in a range of different activities? So, they use the same phone survey yeah. thing. So, over six days, five calls, you would respond using a phone, keypad, same thing. You know, where are you? At home or at work or other? Are we doing something creative? How are you feeling? Others with yeah. you. i will pay 25 bucks. So, response rate was 48%. Okay. So, that's lower. Lower, yeah. yeah. As compared with your sample 33% said they were doing something creative. I think you said 22?
0: Yeah, 22. Yeah, 39% for the arts majors, yeah. 19% for non-arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Yes, and they said that 90% of the variability attributed to the within individual, not between effects. So, that's the okay. situational, situational. The yeah, mood stuff. Hmm. Personality, they found that openness, conscientiousness and agreeableness were positively associated with
0: so agreeableness as well, yeah. which is different from yeah.
1: Neuroticism was was negative. Mm-hmm. Extraversion was unrelated. They found intelligence at age eleven, with the Ravens Progressive Matrices and the WISC, were both predictive of creativity. Mm-hmm. So, which is really interesting because it's like so this is a test when they were eleven and thirteen. Yeah, predicts with a large effect size, so point three and point six, mm. of one random week. Yeah. they age 52.
0: Of the day to day creative yeah. activities yeah. that they'd be involved yeah. in.
1: So it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, creativity was higher if you're at work or if you're excited. So the <laughs> regression, yeah. they put everything into regression. And what they found was that creativity, the creative activity in the moment, intelligence in childhood, previous creative ability, and neuroticism negatively or predicted all the other personality things seemed to drop out okay. in the regression. So you are four times more likely to be creative if you're at work, two times higher if you're at home. And if you're working at home, high creativity, but if you're resting at home, lower creativity. Which Hmm. kind of makes sense. Yeah. Feeling excited doubled the amount of likelihood of creativity (laughs) and openness to experience and conscientiousness. Neither of them predicted, which is a bit different to what you're talking Mm. about. But maybe that gets to the sample. So, yeah. So, really, really interesting sample. Like, I love these old longitudinal studies. Yeah. And sort of something um, so rare, so rare. Yeah. So, in psychologists, we get really excited about that stuff. Study two, they wanted to address some limitations, mainly that the missing data, like the fifty-two-year-olds, the they said probably weren't that good at using cell phones, and that's why they had some mis- quite a lot of missing data. So, and they wanted to use better measure of emotions, better measure of personality, and a different measure of creativity. Okay. Uh, so they did a diary study. Mm-hmm. that five hundred seventeen Polish. Adults from a larger study and measure a creative self-concept. So that's this idea of like, you know, do you, do you think you've got a creative self? They had intelligence measures, creative activity in the last year, creative achievement, lifetime, personality. And then they had an online diary once a day asking about creative activity and the time spent. And then also a list of creative activities that you could have been doing, mm-hmm. emotions as well. So, they had a higher rate, so 43% said they were doing something creative during the day, average of 142 minutes, and they split creative activity into arts, science, or everyday. Mm -hmm. And like what you were talking about, positive and active emotions promoted creativity. They found that there was like less creativity on the weekends and more Mm. creativity during, and there was more everyday creativity and less scientific creativity during the weekends. That makes sense. That makes sense. They found that mind-wandering attention-like states had a small but significant positive relationship to creativity. Okay. Yeah, so not just this positive emotions we were talking about.
0: Sort of daydreaming.
1: Yeah, daydreaming. So, if you felt you had a creative personal identity or a creative self-efficacy, that predicted time spent on activity, but also agreeableness Hmm. to be so... Some personality imp- impacts there. So they had a couple of different measures of creativity, and then they looked at those like what predicted. So daily creative behaviors in art, mm-hmm. topic art, seemed to be negative with conscientiousness. Okay, seems you opposite to what the finding was in yours.
0: Well, yeah. Although mine was looking at sort of everyday. Creativity in general. Yeah, right. So, so maybe...
1: said maybe apples and oranges. Hmm. Um, daily creative behaviours in art was positive with creative achievement, just generally, mm-hmm. so if you're more successful in that. In science, they had sort of a similar set of results. Every, just general everyday creativity was, again, associated with creative achievement, creative personal identity and negative with intelligence. Hmm. So it's a sort of, kind of a complex set of... Um, findings there hopefully i've explained them adequately i don't feel i have they also found an effect of positive emotions on daily creativity Mm -hmm. it was larger for people with high intelligence okay so sort of intelligence seemed to moderate that relationship similarly creative achievement same sort of same findings for creative achievement and positive emotions to explain that so higher past creative achievement the effect of positive emotions on your everyday creativity was more yep Right, so this is uh, what really what I'm trying to get at is that there's these moderating effects, yeah. So that which makes the relationship larger or smaller, mm. and I mean the main points that they sort of found was that yeah, look this this study does replicate our findings that emotions are really quite important. Yeah, they were kind of interested in this whole kind of like what mind wandering altering states as predicting yeah um, creativity, and then what they thought was also interesting was that weekdays were far more creative for everyday creativity than weekends.
0: Yeah, whereas you'd assume it would be the opposite, that you'd have more time on the weekends.
1: Yeah, but maybe it's just because you're just lounging around, not doing quite as much. Yeah,
0: maybe. Interesting.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I know there's a a lot of results, but yeah.
0: Very interesting. So, my second article is called Creativity and Bipolar Disorder Igniting a Dialogue by Johnson and colleagues in 2016 in Qualitative Health Research. So, this research wanted to look at the relationship between bipolar and creativity. They speak a lot about how there's been this long standing link between bipolar and creativity. So, there's sort of anecdotal things about lots of artists having swings in. In mood then there's research that people with bipolar and their family members are more likely to choose creative occupations yep. uh, that creativity is often subjectively valued by people with bipolar and that the sort of aesthetic preferences that people with bipolar have are consistent with highly creative people mm. so there's sort of a whole bunch of common threads there
1: should we stop and explain just briefly what bipolar yeah. disorder might be
0: so bipolar is characterized by having sort of swings in mood. So from really low, uh, so it's depressed depressed yeah. mood, up to then quite high. And that can be agitated or excited, energetic, yeah. so, so it's sort of mania.
1: So Yeah, so what we call like mania or, or in some sense manic. Yeah. So people are very sort of grandiose, yeah. very, very full of confidence, a lot of energy, yeah. very, very little sleep.
0: You can also have mixed things where you're depressed and manic at the same time, which is I'm sure it's very
1: complicated. Interesting. And then and you can have hypermanic, which is yeah. like less than like you're elevated yeah. but you're not quite as
0: You're kind of noticeably more active and, yeah. and busy and fast.
1: But not quite as for want of a better term, crazy yeah. like in, in that kind of thing. So and
0: And you can also just have mania without having any episodes of Depression as
1: well. It sounds like a really, really fun disorder, but it's incredibly disabling, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: and long-term. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, in amongst the research, there's also been ambiguous information about what this relationship actually involves and particularly what the impact of manic episode has on creativity. So, then this also links to the impact of medication that's given for mania Mm. and then the impact on creativity, which is a bit mixed in its findings as well. Is um, it
1: that specific to lithium or is it was it
0: they spoke about lithium but also other like antipsychotic medications yeah, and right. things as well.
1: So the lithium I think was discovered by an Australian It was a p- Melbourne guy. Yeah um psychiatrist. Yeah.
0: Basically they wanted to just explore this relationship and speak to people who were creative and had bipolar about what their experiences were of this Mm. link so they spoke to people who had a self-reported diagnosis of bipolar and identified as a creative person so they had a sort of creative open day and people who attended and participated in these focus groups most of them their main occupation was something that you would consider as a creative occupation so you know musician writer artists that sort of thing so they participated in focus groups and each one lasted for about 90 minutes uh they got them to complete a few measures as well as being part of the the focus group uh so looking at their symptoms and their quality of life and then their creative achievement to check that the sort of self-reported creativity matched yeah. What was going on Cause, for them?
1: Because one of the problems with having someone with bipolar is they would say that potentially they're very creative. Yeah. And they would write a lot of, say, poetry or something. But might not necessarily. That's absolutely terrible. Yeah. All, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And then the symptom questionnaires were to check that they... Met criteria or had symptoms in that yeah, were yeah, consistent yeah, yeah. with their self-reported diagnosis. Yeah. When they looked at the transcripts and sort of analyzed the themes that came out in the focus groups, they came up with five core themes. The first one they called pros and cons of manic energy. Yeah. So that there are extremely positive and negative impacts on people's creativity when they were manic, and so for some people it really supported. Their creative output, it gave them a lot of energy, sort of spurred them on. Mm. But for other people, it impeded it because they felt like they had no control and Mm. that they would get really fixated on one idea and not be able to move from it even if they wanted to. So, they'd decide on a particular project, know that it wasn't the right thing, (laughs) but be unable to shift their attention. They also spoke about how their obsession with creative projects while they were manic really impeded their relationships and their responsibilities otherwise. So they would devote all of their time into this creative endeavour, whatever it was. And they also identified like what you mentioned, that in their manic state they thought they were being creative, Mm. came out of that and realised that they weren't. Yeah. Then the final thing in that category was this sort of stop-start creative inspiration that came with mania that it wasn't a consistent sustainable feeling mm. it was that you could wake up one morning and be ready to go and then just lose it entirely <laughs> yeah the second theme was benefits of altered thinking so a lot of participants described these unusual states of thinking that really helped them in their creative work yeah. uh, so feeling like they have special or magical kind of sources of creativity that they thought in multiple dimensions rather than in a linear mm. way. Um, so, they had sort of a broader conceptualization of what was going on. Uh, they felt like they could connect different ideas better than when they weren't manic. Yeah. And they felt like they were sort of channeling this creative energy. So, it kind of it has that feel of sort of driving force. <laughs> yeah. 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 It um, sort of
1: reminds me of like descriptions of people when who take uh, drugs like, yeah, perhaps not so much weed, but like things like ecstasy, ecstasy, or acid, yeah, acid, which um, kind of there's like quite altered patterns of thinking at that time, mm, things like, that are
0: different from what you could yeah, normally yeah. imagine. It,
1: people people smoke weed. I mean, one of the descriptions in one of my textbooks was that people smoke weed when they're high uh feel like they're having profound insights yeah um was like like that was like almost verbatim in yep. the book which is pretty funny but i think actually some of the other other things like you do actually think in kind of mm. very very
0: different ways yeah a kind of altered perception which
1: may or may not be classed as creative depending on what you're doing on on yeah
0: your, yeah classification <laughs> Um, so, another theme was on medication, so finding a balance that supported their creativity. So, they had sort of mixed responses about whether it was helpful or not to their creativity taking medication. And most responses were pretty negative. But what they agreed on was that you had to find the right dosage that kind of kept your mania under control but didn't dampen your creativity too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, The other theme was creativity as central to identity. So there was quite a detailed discussion about how creativity was really important to each person's sense of identity Mm -hmm. and their identity beyond their illness. So not just someone with bipolar, I'm, you know, this creative person Mm -hmm. as well. And that for some people, it sort of added a purpose to their diagnosis so one person said that it was a gift having bipolar because Mm. it meant that they could be this creative person Mm. and then they also spoke about sort of emotional outlets and methods of communicating that it gave them a way of communicating what they're experiencing that they wouldn't have had otherwise and a way of their illness being socially acceptable so being you know being a creative person with bipolar it was seen as more accepted by other people than mm. they're
1: not yeah i was thinking as you're saying that it has this interesting push-pull around it which is that they have this illness it gives them this creativity or this mm. is what they're sort of they're, they're attributing so yeah. you know it kind of allows them to think differently and have this energy and stuff and that's great but then at the same time you know it's kind of sewed with the fact that they have you know yeah y- you could never kind of get away from it because you'd be like well i'm creative because of the bipolar like yeah. uh you know and and, and it can be such a uh, disabling condition.
0: Yeah. And, there's, yeah, there's, it's not a sustainable yeah. feeling. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the last bit was about using creativity in reducing stigma and improving treatment. Yeah, right. So people had quite negative experiences with doctors and found that a lot of health professionals, particularly doctors, were quite dismissive of their creative ideas. And sort of, you know, encourage them to find work that was more stable or less, you know, less unpredictable, that sort of thing. And they felt quite that the doctors really underestimated how important creativity was to their recovery as well as to their identity. Yeah, right. And that perhaps there were therapeutic possibilities of integrating creative approaches Mm. into the treatments that are available. Yeah, which is it's interesting. Which
1: is interesting because like sort of the, I don't know a lot about bipolar, but the stuff that I know is like get your bipolar patient into a routine. Yeah. Get them doing something where they keep regular hours because sleep's really important to yeah. regulate because if you don't sleep a lot, then you can influence a manic episode yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So the treatment approach is stability. Stability.
0: Boring. Stable as diet. More.
1: Boring as a new black. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah so that sort of creative
1: that tension yeah and i'm not yeah so i'm not surprised with that they would say that at all no
0: yeah and it'd be interesting how it would go trying to integrate those two perspectives like whether you could you know have creative aspects within a routine or within yeah or whether it it would be hard to contain, I don't know. Yeah,
1: because, th- you know, the feeling as a clinician, I think, is that when someone presents with bipolar or hypomania or something, mm. is that it could run away. Yeah. Like it, things could, things could it's spiral. It's got a pace to it. It <laughs> cons- yeah. can spiral and, and I think it would be naturally quite difficult as a treating clinician mm. too,
0: Because it's got a lot of risk associated with it as yep. well. Like it, it's not um, the sort of... So the, Manic behavior isn't always sort of just being grandiose. It can be quite dangerous to other people and to themselves. Well,
1: I mean, the the classic examples are people who spend all their money starting up businesses or spend all the family's money or they sleep with lots and lots of people in a very short period of time. Can you think of any other examples?
0: Uh, There's also a fairly high rate of suicide and self-harm and stuff like that that comes with with mania as well. Tattoos, yeah, it's kind of uh, impulsive, like those those barriers that would get in the way of you doing something risky. Yeah, otherwise, yeah. aren't a, there?
1: And the a treatment approach for bipolar is like, if it's a good idea to paint the house blue, it'll still be a good idea to paint the house blue next week. Yeah, um, yeah, give it some time. Yeah, give it some time. So, anyway, so we're getting a bit off crazy, yeah. but,
0: <laughs> but yeah, I found that quite interesting, and I guess it it fit with my conceptualization of bipolar and with Mm. it it made a lot of a lot of sense and i guess the thing that came out for me as well was thinking about you know the importance of acknowledging where your clients are coming from Mm. that you could quite easily alienate someone if you kind of went well
1: if you'd been dismissive
0: if you'd been dismissive or like that kind of balance between your priority or what you know is best practice versus something that's quite central to someone's identity and how to kind of juggle those two things yeah.
1: well i mean it's not such a bad segue into the article that i'm going to talk about it's called the influence of handedness and bilateral eye movements on creativity mm. it's a by elizabeth Shobe and colleagues in brain and cognition in 2009
0: hang on are you going neuro
1: yeah i'm going neuro Woo-hoo! so uh, the reason that this caught my eyes because i'm left-handed and so not dissimilar to what you talk about which is the with the with the bipolar and then this conception that with bipolar people are creative yeah the classic thing you hear is the left-hander is oh you must be creative mm. or oh, left-handers are creative and, you know people will cite lots and lots of artists uh who have been left-handed i did some community radio and i did a special on left-handed musicians yeah because there are quite a, an amazing list of i think a couple of the beatles were yeah Cobain, david bowie um, Iggy Pop, yeah. all sorts of stuff like it's really quite interesting.
0: So, were you looking for research to prove that you are creative because you're left-handed, or to say no, it's ridiculous, it doesn't exist? And I was just,
1: I was, I was curious to see. Was curious to see. It's been quite some time. I did a lot of in undergraduate la- laterality of the brain, yeah. which is like which side of the brain does what, yeah, is quite an interesting research topic and has been for some quite some time mm. so i was I, but i don't think i'd ever really looked at creativity okay. per se yeah so th- that was kind of my background into it so they talk about you know they suggesting that creative process is not well understood the research is focused on neural substrates or parts of processes in the brain that underlie this process and there's good evidence that creative process is facilitated by interaction between both the left and the right hemispheres yep.
0: So, integration rather than... Yeah. Than, yeah.
1: So, this test the hypothesis that greater inter-hemisphere interaction will improve performance on a test of creativity. And, mm-hmm. the, and the test of creativity is the alternative uses test, which is... They call it a divergent thinking test. But basically, what you do is you have a list of things like a brick. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and you say, what... Aside from using it to build a house... Yeah. How else could you use a brick? Right? <laughs>
0: Sorry, I immediately thought of an inappropriate answer. I can continue Tell me. Hit someone over the head with it.
1: <laughs> but that would be that would be creative, right? So, um, <laughs> it would be an alternative use. Yeah, it would be definitely an alternative use. Don't <laughs> stop. That's it. So they... No,
0: two shrinks pod does not advocate hitting anyone over the head.
1: <laughs> unless it's for creativity. Um, so they talked about... So in this day, they had two conditions, which is trait inter-hemisphere interaction. So that mm-hmm. would be handedness. Yeah. Um, different, like with your left-handed, right-handed, or mixed-handed... An estate version of inter hemisphere interaction, which was experimentally manipulated but through an eye movement task. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a little bit of background, and I might add comprehensive literature review. <laughs> it has been quite some time since I've done any neuro reading, so neuropsychological neuro yeah. stuff is like which bit of the brain does what, and then more increasingly as technology got better, it's like which processes in the brain yeah. does what. It's like, and it becomes really complicated if you're just a poor clinical <laughs> focused psychologist <laughs> like myself. So, lots of research that suggests that the right hemisphere is fundamental to creativity creative thinking and so as a result uh, if you're left-handed the contralateral side of the brain so that would be the right hand right side of the brain controls the left hand and vice versa so this is why there's this sort of older perception that left hand is more creative right so
0: whereas the left is more about language and
1: Yeah. Yeah. In in theory. In theory in the older, yeah. It gets really complicated, so we won't weigh into that. But so they talk about increased right hemisphere activation noted in divergent thinking problems, Mm -hmm. like writing or imagining a creative story. Persons with schizophrenia and a dysfunctional left hemisphere are known to have hyper or distorted qualities of divergent thinking. Mm -hmm. So more magical ideation, loose association, ability to connect novel information... Yeah. And there's also an association between schizotypy and artistic abilities on creative yeah. or creative scores. So schizotype is kind of like this personality level dimension of that's very similar to schizophrenia. Sort of bizarre thinking. B- yes, yeah, sort of, bizarre yeah. thinking and and that kind of stuff. So so they suggest that there's this. Why would the right hemisphere have a role in creativity? It's got this propensity towards a broad spread of activation to alternative meanings. Alternative context and weakly related concepts relative to the left hemisphere, which has a lot of inhibition of all but the most strongly related concepts. Mm. So the kind of almost opposing kinds of ways. Yeah. So the, the idea is that the right hemisphere of your brain has an inherent processing style that assists the creative process. But they go on to talk about well, you know, any notion that the right hemisphere is a seat of creativity is false. Rather, that there's actually interaction between the two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. And they're not acting independently. Yeah. They say that the diffuse nature of the right hemisphere allows the left hemisphere, which is more hierarchically organized, to acquire and acquire new and alternate word meanings, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Or that there's belief updating and semantic processing which requires both hemispheres. Yeah. They talk about That both the left and the right hemispheres contribute to creativity because it's not a singular process, right? It lots involves lots of ordinary processes: the imagery, memory, novelty processing, that kind of stuff. And they found in MRI studies that both hemispheres can get activated uh, in particular creative tasks. Mm -hmm. So so they also found that cerebral commissurotomy patients, so these are people who've had the corpus callosum cut. So this is this thick band of um, neurons in the Mm. brain that connects the two hemispheres, sort of like a highway between the two hemispheres. When they've been cut, these people have deficits in creativity. They also have a couple of other deficits as well. So don't just go and cut that. But um, (laughs) they...
0: Handing out good advice here today. Advice. Don't hit people with bricks. Don't cut your corpus callosum. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um,
1: so, they point out that inter hemisphere interaction and its relationship with creativity has not been experimentally investigated. So, that's what they wanted to do. So, mixed handers, so people mm-hmm. who use that and are not, so yeah, not strong with one or, or the other, will have greater inter hemisphere interaction mm-hmm. than strong handers. And in this, they sort of really they talk about sort of like if someone's left-handed, like I'm left-handed, but I probably would be classed as mixed-handed in this study. I think okay because I can use like both hands to do lots of stuff. Yeah, like I, I throw with a I throw with my right hand, mm. but I like write with my left. Okay, and stuff like that. So and that's quite common. Yeah, this name the idea of a left-hander is actually a bit of a misnomer. Yeah, we're more sort of mixed-handers, but mm. you do get some people who are like super strong left-handed. Mm. Anyway, so the, and they talk about sort of this. There's um, some di- research on the direction of handedness and creativity, and some, uh, some findings with artists having a high incidence of left handedness. They also wanted to, in this study, ha- manipulate inter hemisphere interaction. So, this is this bilateral eye movement task. So, mm-hmm. when you move both eyes, you activate both hemispheres, yeah. right? So, they want to see how this would affect stuff. Okay, so the study. 62 undergraduates, I use the alternate uses test, which is 20 items. Think of uses for these items. Paperclip, shoe, Sorry. brick, <laughs> murder weapon. <laughs> ha- Sorry. And then they rated those on various dimensions. Rated handless on the Edinburgh Handless Inventory. Mm-hmm. Bilateral eye movement task very, very quickly. There's a moving circle on a screen. You'd follow that colored circle on the white background with your head still, mm-hmm. like holding it on a, on a stand. A participants in a control condition where they just would look at a circle and that wouldn't move. Right? Yep. So, two different conditions. They randomly assign those people to it. So, they do five items of the alternate uses task. They do the eye movement task and then do 15 items of okay. the alternate uses task and then look at the differences. So, they hypothesized that high inter- hemisphere interaction Seen mixed handers would result in high creativity than strong handers. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what they found. And they thought that the bilateral eye movement task, which would increase interaction between the hemispheres, would increase creativity. But that this would be limited to strong handers. Because if you're mixed handed...
0: You're already doing that.
1: Yeah, you, you've already got that going on. So you wouldn't benefit from further activation. And that's what they also found as well. Mm. So they found that the differences between mixed and strong handers in the control group disappeared when looking at the bilateral eye movement group. Okay. okay, No differences between mixed handers and in the control group and the eye movement groups. And that strong handers' originality scores were higher in the eye movement condition than in the control condition. Mm-hmm. And that this bilateral effect was limited to strong handers. They also looked at the effect of eye movement task on creativity. And they seemed to think that the activation lasted for about effect seemed to last for about seven to nine minutes Mm. for originality but for about one to three minutes for for (laughs) categorical distinctiveness so why that was interesting is that they seem to think that those originality and categorical distinctiveness are distinct processes rather than part of like one creative node so just for example the creativity construct of categorical distinctiveness may also take advantage of the specializations of the left and right hemispheres left hemisphere is particularly well suited to categorical processing, whereas the right hemisphere is particularly well suited to identifying multiple categorical memberships without the ability to distinguish the most relevant category. Mm -hmm. So, recruitment of the left hemisphere abilities for identification for specific categories and the right hemisphere's abilities for multiple categories may give rise to sort of this combined advantage for categorical distinctiveness in this task. I know that's kind of really complicated... Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's sort of like using the two different ways of processing and then that gives you an advantage. Mm. So, so I liked it because it had this sort of notion of, it takes this notion of handedness and kind of adds more depth yeah. to it than this sort of simple like, oh, you know, if you're left-handed, you're more creative, if <laughs> you're right-handed, not that creative. Yeah. Kind of thing. so Well, actually, it's really, really complicated. Yeah. As a left-hand, it's quite nice to read about laterization. Mm. again. Very interesting. So that was me.
0: All right. One last one. Yep. It's a quick one. Uh, So the last one is uh, the relationship between creativity, social play and children's language abilities by Holmes and colleagues in 2015 in early childhood development and care. I went hunting for this one because I'd seen a few articles that were kind of looking at whether children can be considered to be creative or not, um, with some people saying, well, no, because they don't have enough abstract Reasoning to be able to do so. And that seems so counter to what I think about children. That, mm. Yeah. But I ended up with one about play because I love play. Um, so basically, they speak about how there are established links between language development and play. So essentially, we we'll learn how to speak and interact with other people through play with others. Mm. And that in our everyday conversations and language structure, there's a lot of creativity that we're constantly piecing together words in, in new ways to come up with new concepts. And that there's a tendency for children to play with language, like they mix around words to create jokes or to kind of use what often is quite limited language to be able to get across mm-hmm. what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that our cognitive development comes through creative pretend play. So, you know, by pretending to be a different character or to act out what's going on at home or whatever it might be, that sort of helps support our development.
1: Yeah, and like it's interesting because children will play with objects and do stuff and then after a while they'll pretend that this object is something else. And then there's this other level of play where they will pretend that they have an object yeah when there's nothing when it's there it's actually not there yeah. and, and like it's, it, when you actually kind of break that down there's like that's quite an interesting it's a complex kind process thing to do
0: yeah and they're quite clear that it's pretend yeah and yeah it's interesting how they then communicate that mm. and integrate other people yeah. into that yeah so the aim of this research was to understand the relationship between language creativity and social play uh, to do this they had a sample of 225 preschool children uh the researchers spent time in the preschools where the children were for a couple of weeks um so the children were comfortable with them so they had snacks with them played with them all the rest of it they tried to minimize the adults as authority dynamic with them as much as possible They then administered a drawing task for creativity. So it was the draw a person task where the kids had to draw a creative. Person. They recorded observations of their social play and then they administered the Peabody picture vocabulary tests. What they found was that there was a negative relationship between receptive vocabulary and parallel play. So kids are at the point of playing beside their peers but not really interacting with no, them. So, kind parallel of, play, yeah. yeah, matching their activities. They were lower in their receptive vocabulary, so their ability to understand words that were spoken to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they found higher receptive vocabulary for kids who were higher in complex social play. So he mm-hmm. did that kind of role-playing interaction. Well,
1: well that makes sense, right? Like, Which makes sense? If you don't understand, like if you're not able to understand... What's being said to you, or being said to you by another child or another adult? Yeah. Then you would just play next to that other child, yeah. and
0: and vice versa as well. If you're not interacting, then you're not going to have opportunities to learn those words. Yeah. And to build that.
1: Whereas, like, vocab. if you're able to do that, then you can. Yeah. Learn from might, one another. You might actually play with the other people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then they found that creativity was negatively related to onlooker play, so sort of just standing back and watching someone else play so those kids were lower in creativity mm-hmm. and creativity was also lower in kids who played by themselves and who had parallel play so mm. it was very much as they expected that sort of social process facilitates creativity language development I mean, sort of all w- feeds into and you, would you
1: wonder about that with like shy mm. shyness and anxiety yeah children
0: yeah that sort of it sort of feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way mm. that both they wouldn't feel as able to interact mm-hmm. with other people but then would miss out on those opportunities to interact and build their language and social mm-hmm. skills to then be able to do that. So that sort of mm-hmm. yeah, keep on looping around. So yeah, so there's a little bit of a insight into how creativity yeah, in play.
1: Your articles are always so much sharper than mine.
0: <laughs> I hunt for them. <laughs> Actually no, I think it's a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So shall we take a break?
1: Let's take a break. And we will come back with things we came across. Excellent. You are listening to Two Shrinks Pod. See you soon.
0: Experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition.
1: It's intuition. So you're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. This is part of the pod where uh, we'd like to say thank you for listening. Uh, We really do appreciate everyone tuning in.
0: And if you like what you're listening to... You should rate us on iTunes or send us lovely gifts in the post or something to stop me from rambling during these these portions. You
1: almost sounded professional then. I know, almost. almost. And
0: then just the moment passed because I could see you looking like you were going to burst.
1: Because it's been about the fourth or fifth take of this.
0: Yeah, and I still think that we could have stopped at the second or third.
1: You get Amy, Amy can talk stats all you want. Get get it to say, please rate us, or you can email us at twoshringspod at gmail.com. Yeah,
0: can I talk you through that binary logistic regression? Oh, my God. Okay, so the predictors were...
1: (laughs) I'm cutting this. I'm cutting this. So yeah, uh, we will get back to the pod and uh, look, thanks for listening. And we've been really enjoying the fact that uh, we can see people overseas listening, um, people in the UK and Japan and USA, but also like really kind of uh, unusual countries. Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, Indonesia.
0: We definitely need a map.
1: There was someone from Iran. I think there might mm-hmm. have only been two people from Iran.
0: Can we please have a map? Uh, a map. Yeah, I want a map where everyone's coming from. Yep. And so then we can track it. And
1: did, did you ever use PC Globe as a, yeah, a school? Yeah. Yeah. was a great program. Many geography assignment was done with that.
0: We could also just use that. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Do you remember that? <laughs> 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 that had geography.
1: Uh, we're off we'll to go and find an Apple IIe on uh, eBay, and uh, we'll. Uh, we'll be back soon. Back soon. <laughs> Two sheets, Spot. And we're back. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, So this is the things we came across. This is our segment at the end of the show where we talk about articles that we've come across usually on a lit search that's completely unrelated to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the paper I'm going to talk about is the classic things we came across uh, when I was looking for my handedness and creativity yeah, I came across this article, which is reduced dream recall frequency in left-handed adolescents: a replication study. Huh? Yeah, by Michael Shireld uh, and colleagues in, and it was published in uh, 2014 in Laterality. So they talk about in this study that we spend about a third of our lives asleep, and it suggested that during the onset of sleep, the two hemispheres in the brain do not shut down at mm-hmm. the same rate. And so they found that finger tapping and reaction time tasks show decrement in performance during the sleep onset period It occurs earlier for the right than the left hand, implying that the left hemisphere falls asleep earlier than the right. Hmm. And they found that at night, both left-handers and right-handers exhibit more movement of the left hand, and that cannot be explained by things like the side of their sleeping. Hmm. It implies a greater level of arousal or activation in the contralateral right hemisphere. So, yeah, so I'm going a bit neuro again. Um,
0: it's quite a shock. I'm, I'm enjoying it, but go for it. <laughs> and it's
1: so refreshing to go neuro. Gosh, I feel like I'm back in second year. Hmm. So Does they... this mean we get to do a neuro episode? Oh, my gosh. I was actually going to get a neuropsych on to do a neuro one, but then that might be a bit too intimidating. I could take them. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so... They talk about that they think that maybe these differences might be related to dreaming because that's really what we do when we're asleep, or the brain does when they're asleep. Long literature review, quite complicated as to whether the left or the right hemispheres are essential for dreaming, based on neurological studies of brain injuries, brain scans. There's some suggestion that the left hemisphere is more important than... and this is being reflected in at least one study that shows the dream recall is higher in right-handers. But the findings are mixed, mythological problems... And they sort of conclude saying that the nature and existence of handedness differences in dream recall remains an open question. Mm-hmm. And then they, like, right at the end of the literature, review, say, oh, you know, um, and we found in a previous study by themselves that they'd found that right handed, inconsistently handed persons reported a higher home dream recall frequency. And left-handers. Okay. And then so they go. So they we're going to do replication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the main justification for the replication is doing a large sample. Yeah. So they got three and a half thousand. Wow. Participants. So really large sample. Three uh, three thousand five hundred and thirty-five. Sixty percent female. Uh, mean age of twelve, range six to eighteen years. And so okay. they they split the sample six to eleven, twelve to eighteen. Yeah. So just sort of down the middle. Gave them a dream questionnaire. How often do you wake up and recall a dream? And then they assessed handedness via three actions. So whether you throw, right, and brush your teeth. With what hand you could answer, left, right, or either.
0: Which do you do all the with?
1: So I uh, throw with my right hand, right with my left, brush with my left. Okay. So according to that, I'd be a, a, inconsistent? A, an inconsistent I wouldn't be classified as left-handed hmm. on that. So they they had two a couple of different ways of classifying that. So you were right-handed if you used all three or if you had right-handed writing and then for the other two uh, you said right-handed or either. Okay. Right. And so yeah. the reverse left-handers and if you were and anyone else was mixed-handed. So I'd be mixed-handed. Mm. And then the second one would be the second way of classifying was like you had to do all three with the one hand. Yeah. Um, and it mixed with everyone else. So, so they gave out questionnaires in the libraries in the UK. It's interesting. So they said they found that sixty-seven percent of the sample were right-handed. About twenty-two percent were inconsistent. Around nine percent were left-handed. So, mm. which is kind of different interesting to stats, the what you would normally think of adult population. Yeah. So, I, mean, I
0: suppose though, if you've got kids who are younger as well, I wonder if that's
1: but hand, mm. comes or, in comes in around two. So.
0: Or whether it is that thing of normally you would answer that you were left or right-handed, not, not inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> like if someone asked you, you'd say you were left-handed. Yeah,
1: exactly right. So it kind mm. of gets, so methodologically it's kind of quite interesting. Mm. Anyway, and what they found was that clear evidence that no matter which classification right-handers and inconsistently handed participants had higher dream recall than left-handers. Well, And the effects were observed in the adolescents of the older age group and not in the younger age group. Mm-hmm. And females, in the sample, had higher dream recall than males. Yeah. The difference seemed to be slight, like a wooden, like probably like a small effect rather than a large effect. Um, and they were unsure as to what caused the observed difference.
0: In genders? Uh,
1: no, no, in mm. terms of the handedness, handedness. thing. So they, they said, well, maybe it could be to do with the size of the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres, and that's associated with the strength of handedness and this idea that consistent-handedness have decreased interaction between left and right hemispheres, mm-hmm. like kind of what I was talking yeah. before, um, relative to inconsistent-handedness. And they suggest that that might be associated with a smaller corpus callosum, except the fact that the association between corpus callosum size and handedness is yeah. really, really inconsistent. Yeah. So there's other theories that left-handers sleep less well, mm. and they cited a whole lot of research that saying that they wake easier. I guess they're is- not
0: getting into as many... REM. Um, yeah, REM so, cycles, so to spend
1: yeah. less time in REM sleep. In REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, mm. is the sleep where you have dreams. L- most of your dreams, although you can Not have dreams all. in non-REM sleep mm. as well. Yeah, so this or sort of, well, maybe this is associated with the of to wake during REM sleep, or to, and so have higher recall, or it could be associated with sleep apnea or other mm-hmm. factors which inf- influence dream recall. They do suggest that one study say that, interesting, they say that left-handers are more likely to recall vivid dream experiences mm-hmm. than either right- or mixed-handers who would be better able to just recall dreams. Yeah. Just just average stuff. So, hmm. so they talk about lucid dreams and fantastic nightmares. Yeah. it was an interesting description. Fantastic nightmares. Hmm. They finish off saying, well, the content of dreams might be important to look at as well. Yeah. So, I've got to say, I'm not really sure how I could ever really use that. But I mean, it's interesting because some, some therapists definitely will focus on dreams. And yeah. I mean, I know that sounds quite airy-fairy, but if you are seeing a therapist and you have a dream that's striking, mm. discuss it with them. Yeah. Because sometimes it can be actually quite uh, useful. And, and not... it's
0: often about your reaction to the dream and how you interpret it rather than this has happened in the dream, so it must mean this yeah it's kind of the emotional or cognitive kind of sense that you make of it
1: yeah yeah and sometimes actually talking about it with someone else can be quite useful because you'll get a different perspective on it because mm. you're like oh i had this dream and, and the therapist would be like do you think that maybe that little girl in the dream was you yeah and like oh wow yeah, yes. <laughs> you know that kind of thing or yeah. like that so but yeah I, there you go I, I, <laughs> just, I, but they just call my eyes like what? Why would left-handers... Okay. Yeah. Anyway. There you go. So, small effect. All right. Uh, what have you got for us?
0: So, I start with a question. Yes. What is your favorite food?
1: Uh, I'm getting a strong cheese vibe.
0: <laughs> That's fair. When was the last time you craved something to eat?
1: Probably today after I went for a run. Yeah. And I knew that there was corn chips in the house. <laughs> 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 I had them.
0: So this afternoon I was craving chocolate (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so I went searching for something about craving food Uh, and found an article called The Phenomenology Phenomenology of Food Cravings, The Role of Mental Imagery by Tigman and Camps in 2005 in Appetite. And so they wanted to understand the role of mental imagery in the experience of food cravings. Mm. So it's it's quite detailed what they did but so they had 130 undergrad students and they asked them to recall with a lot of details if it was happening now a recent food craving and to rate the intensity of that craving so they had to write a short paragraph about the experience in as much detail as they could and then rate how much that craving had been triggered by various factors so like hunger stress Smelling the food, thinking about the food, sort of thing. Uh, they then asked them to think about their favourite food and imagine eating it in a lot of detail again, as much as they could possibly come up with um and again as if it was happening right now mm. and to rate the vividness of the image and their current urge to eat that food and then they were asked to describe their experience of it on Likert scales so they're asked to rate sensory descriptors so things like i saw the food i heard myself eating the food things like that and then break down into percentage how much each sensory modality contributed. So, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. sight, smell, etc. cetera. Uh, they also had to complete a food cravings questionnaire, um, a questionnaire that assessed their ability to create mental imagery. So, it was imagery in terms of multiple sensory facets, not just visual image. And then the revised restraint scale, which was about how much dietary restraint they apply. To themselves so results only two out of the 130 participants couldn't recall craving food mm-hmm. uh, the most common theme was this overwhelming nature of the craving that they couldn't focus on anything else it just sort of <laughs> consumed them
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. most commonly people crave chocolate yeah right. about a quarter Ah, uh, followed by that
1: surely is a gender effect. There. Yeah, there was
0: far more women <laughs> than than men. It was a bit over a third for women. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh takeaway. Yeah, and then uh, some sort of meal. Yeah, yeah.
1: I totally get like a like if it's a long drive, like I totally get like a a, a Macca's craving. Oh uh, yeah. There's rules about, like, you can't go to McDonald's if you're driving. You can't detour. <laughs> yeah, you have the, to drive yeah, past But you have it. to be driving past. Yeah, that kind of thing. But, yeah.
0: But I was interested that other snacks were less common, like, around sort of 12 to 15%. So, like, things like corn chips or mm. savoury kind of snacks, other sweet things. Mm. pretty low. But
1: I certainly would get, like, particular ones. Yeah. And, like, I remember watching the movie The Martian mm. and... Yeah. Potatoes. He grows potatoes on Mars. Yeah, and then and I was just like, I need to, I need yeah. to like roast some potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: and I don't know about you, but I'll get fixated on something, and until I have that thing, yeah. the crave can last for days, days. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then I have it, and I'm fine. Like it's not.
1: I wonder what like I always wonder about chicken and egg. Like like so mm. like if you've got stuff at like there's I I'd say there's two types. There's like the if I've got stuff at home. Yeah. And then I can sometimes start craving it. Versus the,
0: I can't have that.
1: Yeah. Versus like, whereas if I'm out somewhere or doing something, I'm like, oh.
0: Yeah. A yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. A of box.
0: Yeah. I'll often want something that isn't easy to get. Yeah. That would involve a drive or ordering something or mm-hmm. buying in a lot of ingredients and then cooking it. Something that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Anyway. laughs>
1: What it's, would what would be something a lot of ingredients that you would cook like that?
0: Um, it'd be something sweet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Usually if I'm craving something it's it tends to be sweet. For me it's like let's get out the candy thermometer and make sure that all the ingredients are perfect. Yeah, like right. that sort of
1: That sounds satisfying. Anyway. Oh, it really
0: is. Anyway, um <laughs> so in terms of triggers of having a craving, yep. the four most um commonly endorsed triggers were imagining the food, mm-hmm. suddenly having it sort of pop into your head, picturing yourself eating the food mm-hmm. and then feeling hungry. Yeah. Women were more likely to be triggered by negative emotional states than men. Yeah. And that the intensity of craving was high regardless of the food that you were craving or your gender. Yeah, it was right. just so, so universally um, through the
1: roof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on that triggered thing so one of the most sort of extreme things i ever do was like i backpacked around the states mm. as a you know 20 year old or something i went up to alaska yeah and the classic kind of my girlfriend's family's friend had a friend who knew someone who lived in alaska yeah and emailed them and called them and said, oh, can i come and stay and like yeah just ended up... The town wasn't in the Lonely Planet. Near. Yep. It was the town that I flew to before. I flew to that town, that kind of scenario. And so we're in the middle of the sort of western Alaska and I was talking to these uh, these two women who I was staying with and I was just saying, oh, you know, my father grew up in, you know, northern Queensland and he would always like make us pineapple rings with mm-hmm. brown sugar that you'd stick under the grill Yeah. And then you had so that with... think was almost like literally like picked up the bags that we're going to go get some. Tea <laughs> <laughs> like they're like that sounds That's awesome. Awesome, let's do it now. <laughs>
0: I love it. <laughs> uh, oh, and the last bit was about favourite foods. So most people's favourite food tended to be a meal, yeah, um, followed by takeaway and then chocolate. Yep. So reverse order to craving and that. All of the senses were used in imagining someone's favourite food except for hearing. Not many people thought about hearing themselves eat something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But they had everything else going. (laughs) And then multivariate analysis, just for you. The craving intensity was related to current hunger trait food craving, so your general tendency to crave food tasting the food imagining yourself eating the food like seeing it yeah. and the vividness of the imagery so
1: although i'm gonna say like, can you really separate out those things from the craving like,
0: well they did that with the intensity of how much those things played a part in yeah, someone's right, okay. images so whether how many you know percent wise and intensity that they rated each thing
1: yeah, now i'm thinking about food yeah i
0: thought that might happen <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah. It, email us at twostringspod at gmail if you've just actually had like a food craving. Yeah. And we will we will read that out on air. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's very important research. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <sighs> um, All right.
1: Well, thank you so much for listening. It's been good. Uh, we will definitely try and get the next pod to you a little sooner than two weeks. Yeah. Although Amy's finishing off your masters. That'd be fine. It'd be fine. It'd be fine. It's <laughs> procrastination. No. <laughs> it's active procrastination. <laughs> active procrastination. See the last pod if you're uh, not sure what you're about. Yeah. And we will see you soon.
0: See you soon. Bye.
1: See you
0: We interrupt this broadcast to tell you that Where in the World is Carmen San Diego is actually available online. Hunter and I have left to go and play. And we'll see you next time.
1: <laughs> I'm typing in my d- special detective code.
0: This is so exciting. Uh, welcome to Acme. <gasps> Here are the details of your
1: new case. <laughs> <laughs> if the pod's delayed three weeks, you'll know why. Yep, we're finding Carmen Sandiego.